You're listening to a sermon recording from Southside Christian Church. The sermon you're about to listen to was delivered by Brooks Wilson on December 30th, 2018. For more information about Southside, visit our website at southsidechristian.com. Good morning. Can you still say Merry Christmas or... Oh, okay. Well, good. That was more a reflective question, but I'm glad you responded, you know? It's, um, this is always kind of an awkward Sunday for me, you know? It's, it's like it's, uh, it's after Christmas time, but it's still December. Um, how, how many of you, for instance, how many of you have already taken down your Christmas decorations? Okay. How many of you still have Christmas decorations up? Wow. How many of you will keep them up until Easter, if not all year long? <laughs> Some of you. Okay. All right. It's, it's after Christmas. It's still December. It's not quite the new year yet. It's just kind of an awkward time for me. So I always wonder, like, what, do you, what, what should we talk about in the present? What should we talk about right now, December the 30th? Over the last month, of course, we've been talking about Christmas time and have seen, you know, this, uh, have been reflecting on this beautiful miracle of the birth of Jesus in our time and space. And we've, we've seen it through all kinds of time, you know, through Jesus talking about how the time has come in his coming, how, uh, how Herod was trying to pinpoint the exact time of the Savior's star, how Paul talks about when the time had fully come, God sent his son. Even Matthew has a glimpse through time and his family genealogy, all of this. But what about now? Like, how does the, the Christmas time shape us after Christmas? What about the present? Maybe I shouldn't feel too awkward about this present Sunday. I mean, after all, I just finished this book called uh, The Order of Time by Carlo Rovelli. And he said this in, in his book. He says, the idea that a well-defined now exists throughout the universe is an illusion. In other words, he says, there's no such thing as the present. Boy, that's awkward. <laughs> Here's how he illustrates it. He says, for instance, if I ask what your sister is doing now in the present and she's in the room with you, you look at her and you can tell. If she's in New York, you call her on the phone and ask her what she's doing. But then he says, but take care of this. If you look at your sister, you're receiving light that travels from her to your eyes. That light takes time to reach you. Let's say a few nanoseconds, so a tiny fraction of a second. Therefore, you're not quite seeing what she's doing now, but what she was doing a few nanoseconds ago. He says, if, he calls, if you call her in New York and her voice takes a few milliseconds to reach you, the most you can claim is to know what your sister was up to a few milliseconds ago in the past, right? Not a significant difference, perhaps, he goes on to say, but if your sister is on Proxima B, which is a recently discovered planet that orbits a star about four light years away, then it takes light four years to travel between us. So if you look at her through a telescope or receive a radio communication from her, you know what she was doing four years ago rather than right now. Now, on Proxima B, is definitely not what you see through a telescope or hear over the radio. In fact, you could see her through the telescope, and while you're waiting for the image to crystallize, four years for light to travel that far, of course, she could return to Earth and tap you on the shoulder while you're still seeing her in the telescope. What is now anyway? What is the present? Is it, is it this minute? Because really the next 30 seconds is in the future. Is now this second? Although half the second's gone, now it's in the past. What is it? 
Rovelli says, Our present does not extend throughout the universe. It's like a bubble around us. It's perhaps the greatest and strangest of Einstein's discoveries. You heard the old phrase, there's no time like the present. Maybe literally that's true. There's no time called like this thing the present. I I don't know. It's like the past and the future crash into each other all the time. Now, if that sort of melts your mind like it has mine, then let me invite you to open to Revelation chapter 12 to another mind-melting sort of story where the past and the future crash together. Revelation chapter 12 is on page 998 in those Bibles in front of you. And um, I just want to jump from this, this kind of awkward moment now and to experience the past crashing into our future. Revelation 12, starting in verse 1. Uh, John writes, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now, obviously, you can tell from the beginning, this is a highly symbolic form of writing. They use emblem and hyperbole to describe incredibly significant events. But who is this woman? Well, if you look at the 12 stars, you could argue, as scholars have done, that this points to the 12 patriarchs of Israel, the sun, the moon, the stars. This all sounds like a dream of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37 that described the family of Israel. And so it seems this woman in this apocalyptic story is this covenant community of Israel. And yet you also can't help but see Mary in the story, right? She gives birth to a child who in verse 5 will rule the nations. So in this story, this woman is is God's covenant community, His people, exemplified by Mary who represents that faithful group in the birth of the Messiah. Here we have this kind of behind-the-scenes look at the story of Christmas time and beyond. Keep reading, verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. And now a red dragon enters the scene. It's this like enemy uh, enters the, the picture. Pharaoh in Egypt had been called a dragon by the prophets. You get this kind of image of evil. Uh, Israel had this kind of mythological many-headed serpent dragon monster called Leviathan that they talked about sometimes. Uh, Daniel saw a a fourth beast with ten horns. John, of course, makes very clear whom he thinks this dragon is. Verse 9, this is the devil, he says. The funny thing is, I don't remember seeing this character in Christmas nativity scenes. You know, as we've kind of entered through the Christmas season here, I've seen a lot of nativity scenes, sometimes in your home, sometimes out in public. The traditional nativity scenes, you know, look something like this. You've got Joseph and and Mary and the baby and shepherds and and who knows other characters. But I've never seen the dragon in these things, you know? I even looked at some really awkward nativity scenes to see if I could find something like that. I saw uh, this nativity scene, for instance. Um, I call that the, the Aflac nativity scene. No... Uh, ducks, no dragon, though. Um, uh, here's another nativity scene with dogs. Uh, can't imagine how long it took to do that. I see a horse, but no dragon. Um, and then there, there's this one. Somebody decided to make a nativity scene out of cheese. I suppose to celebrate the baby Jesus. I know, I know. I, it's... Let's just move on. That's terrible. Uh, here's a... Uh, 
Here's the sock puppet uh, nativity scene. That's a little awkward. Um, here's one f- uh, from kids. I love this, uh, the action figure nativity scene. I think Indiana Jones plays the uh, character of Joseph, but still no dragon. And then there's even this one, uh, an outdoor nativity scene. However, no Mary, Joseph, or Jesus. You can buy that for a hundred bucks. I don't know why you'd want to. I'm guessing no dragon in that one either. But John says he was there in the past, just beyond our ability to grasp it. And this dragon, he's got, he's got destruction in mind with a, a small flexing of his tail. He flings creation into chaos. He, he stood poised to devour this child the moment it was born. The word devour means to consume, the Greek word to, to ravish. It's used at the end of the Greek sentence for emphasis. This behind-the-scenes drama maybe was in played out as Matthew wrote his story in thinking about the, uh, Herod, the king of the Jews, who sought to kill all the children to and under in Bethlehem in order to eradicate this rival to his throne. But despite this dragon's intention, verse 5, she, the woman, gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. The word rule means to shepherd, to to care for. The the iron scepter is a picture of firmness, of stability. This child will rule with graciousness and with strength. And her child, verse 5, was snatched up to God and to his throne. One tiny phrase. John takes the whole of the life of Jesus, his life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, his ascension, all of that caught up, snatched up in this little phrase, this child was a surprise attack on the chaos creature. Now, this is kind of a, a, an amazing story for us, maybe, maybe even a little awkward as we think through all the images here. But uh, during the days of John, there was a, a popular story that circulated around Asia Minor about kind of the Greek pantheon. There was a goddess named Leto who was pregnant with Apollo, who's the son of Zeus. And the story went that she was attacked by this dragon called Python who uh, had heard that her offspring, her child, would kill it. And so uh, because uh, of this threat, she was carried to a safe island by winds sent by Zeus. The god Poseidon in the story hid the island under the water so that Python couldn't find the woman and her child. And then four days after Apollos was born, he found the dragon and slew it. So John here, in his prophetic imagination, kind of retells that sort of classic story in the narrative of God, using Old Testament language, using uh, Old Testament traditions and and the Jewish story as a lens. John tells this story with a wink to the persecuted church all around him. Because you see, in the church, they had heard these Roman Caesars say things like that they were divine. In fact, some of the Caesars were saying, uh, were, were even identifying themselves with Apollo himself. And John lets them know through this Christmas story battle, that these claims are the devil's lie. Far from having to be frightened by the dragon and his henchmen, God's people find protection from the enemy. In fact, in verse 6, this woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. It's the second time that number is used in Revelation, both to allude to God's protection of his witnesses. Just like... God in the past, who had helped his people escape Egypt from that abuse and that slavery and led them into the wilderness where he provided uh, manna and quail and water and his presence. So too, this Christmas battle says that God protects his people during the time of their witness. And that extends to you too. 
The same God who cared for Mary and Joseph has his eye on the sparrow, Jesus says. And aren't you worth much more than birds? So you don't have to worry about your life now, your needs now, your enemy now, because God knows what you need and God will care for you. And besides, what in the world does now even mean, you know? God was faithful in the past. God will be faithful in the future. He will care for you. That's the truth after Christmas time. Well, let's keep reading. Let's see that past crash into the future that we read about here in verse 7. The battle since Christmas. In response to Jesus, it says, Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Now again, notice the story, the the past. The dragon was hurled down. Michael, this, this archangel from Daniel chapter 10, summons all these angels to fight against the dragon and his angels, and they win. And the dragon is ejected out of the heavenly realms, and a song of victory erupts from heaven, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of His Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They triumph over Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury, and he knows that his time is short. Would you say those last four little words with me? His time is short. Our enemy's time is short. His past is long. His future is not. Let that sink in for a moment. All of the chaos, all of the the pain and struggle he has created has a shelf life. All of the injustice that you fight and you feel at work, all of the the pain that you've experienced in that abusive relationship with someone, the ugliness of our dog-eat-dog world, his time is short. His past is crashing into this future. Now, in the meantime, notice that Michael wins the battle. But wait, the, the victory here doesn't credit Michael, but rather God's people on earth. Did you hear it? It said, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The martyrs of Jesus helped bring victory. Apparently, this heavenly battle is connected to an earthly battle such that both Michael in heaven and the martyrs on earth do battle in the name of Jesus, both in the past and in the present, whatever that means, because the lamb was slain. His followers are freely given their lives and these angels are freely battling which deals a double blow to the dragon and he's hurled to the earth with a chip on his shoulder. Because he's lost, he seeks to cause others to be lost. He keeps working chaos into our lives since that day. Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent, but the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing up the river the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. 
Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Listen, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So I just want you to notice a few things about our past crashing into our future now in this story. First of all, in this story it tells us there's an enemy in our story. The the dragon, this devil, leads the whole world astray. We have an enemy. The the devil is one of many titles that uh, used by Jesus and writers of the New Testament to describe this this creature. Uh, He's also called the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the serpent of old. Notice all of these are titles, not names. Many times we think of, of Satan as his name, but in Greek that's not a name. It's actually a title. It means the accuser or the slanderer. Uh, Many people think this is a a slight dig by the writers of the New Testament because they don't even give him a name. Michael the angel has a name, but this devil does not. But I want you to see that throughout the New Testament, this this devil, this creature, is is not a myth. it's It's not a cartoon like this, you know. It's not a Saturday Night Live punchline, you know. Is an invisible but real intelligence who is our enemy. Uh, notice second in this story especially, the agenda of the devil is to destroy. He crashes stars to earth. He seeks to devour a baby. He is hell-bent on destruction. His intent is to tear it all down. He seeks to wreak havoc on anything that's beautiful and just and good. Jesus said he came to kill, to steal, kill, and destroy. Just just look at even some of the language here in verse 13. He pursued the woman while even defeated. He chases God's people with haste, with intensity. Verse 15, he sought to sweep the woman away. The, The dragon's purpose is to hamstring God's people into a situation where they lose control of their own destiny, where they're where they're swept away as if in a torrent. Verse 17, he went off to wage war. Ironically, the the Greek word there uh, for war is where we get our word polemic. You know where an idea fights against another idea? We live in a nation right now, a polemical nation, where where ideas are fighting against one another to a lot of hostility, to a lot of uh, division even among our nation. You know, it's like the ideas of the West versus radical Islam, the ideas of progressives versus conservatives and Republicans and Democrats in every other way. The reason that your soul, that your family, that your work feels like a war zone is because it is. Our enemies at war. And finally, notice that the devil's strategy is deception. You know, normally when we think of fighting against the devil, we think of the sort of Hollywood scenes of, of casting out demons or of crazed people. Or maybe you think of, of massive things like disease or disaster or devastation, the AIDS crisis, tsunamis smashing into islands and all of that. What we don't normally think of first is deception. This enemy, verse 9, leads the whole world astray. He continually, verse 10, accuses believers before God night and day. They don't deserve your grace, God. Look at what he did. They're wrong. He issues, verse 15, verbal propaganda against the people of God. Some think that's what the the flood image is, this verbal propaganda to sweep people away. Jesus said in John 8, He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in Him. When He lies, He speaks His native language, for He's a liar and the father of lies. Our enemy's primary strategy is deception. 
And this devil goes after people today, deceives and lies to people today who primarily do what God says. John says they keep God's commands. And who say what God does. That is people who offer their testimony of Jesus. This is just the past all over again. Into our future. Remember Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent was there with Eve? The serpent did not come at Eve with a, a machine gun or a machete or a sword. He came at Eve with a lie. It's our past all over again into our future. Remember Matthew chapter 4? Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And he didn't come at Jesus with a rocket or with a bomb or with a drone. He came at him with a lie. He comes at us with a lie. What are some lies that you're hearing today that you're tempted to believe? You're not good enough for God and church. You can't change. You'll never make a difference in anybody's life. You're worthless. Nobody cares about you. Lies. All lies. Today we live in the chaos of an Eden battle that took a shocking turn at Christmas time. And maybe that makes a lot of sense to you. Maybe this awkward Sunday has you feeling a little war-torn. Maybe your heart grieves the loss of someone special this year. Maybe your outlook on life, your outlook on your career, your outlook on your own health seems bleak. Maybe you struggle to feel the joy of the season. You look around at all the troubles in your life and chaos just seems to be everywhere. Maybe the twin themes of this story are crashing in your mind. One, that you are loved more than you could ever imagine by our Father. But two, you are hated more than you should be told by our enemy. And they crash together. But the good news... The good news is that God is working. God is fighting for you. God defends His own. Did you even notice in the last verses here how after each attack of the dragon, God provides protection. He's got wings of flight for His people. He's got the earth opening up to swallow the torrent. Our God has got our back. You don't have to fear evil because He is with us. In fact, would you... Would you recite this psalm after me? I read this a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 140, verse 7. I thought it was appropriate as we think about this idea. Just, just say these words after me. Sovereign Lord, my strong deliverer, you shield my head in the day of battle. See, the past crashes into our future. And it's so awkward. But in the meantime, after Christmas time, but before the end of time, hold on. Hold on. Cling to Jesus and His way. Triumph over the lies of this devil by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of your testimony. Do what God says and say what God does. Tell the truth in a world filled with lies. Our enemy is no match for our Father. His time is short. But your time, your time in this Jesus is just getting started. So follow Him for the rest of time. Lord God Almighty, in this day before a new year dawns, we are thankful that in Jesus we have a victor. And we can celebrate that victory 
today, that nothing can hold us back from your mission in the world because of the, the strength of your salvation and your authority. We pray that as a church family, we would live in the truth, that our minds would be shaped by it, that we would speak it well to the world around us so the lies surround us, lead the world astray. We pray, Father, in the, the quiet of, of post-Christmas time that the birth of Jesus would never be far from our hearts, that his presence is with us. Emmanuel is around all year long. We're thank you, thankful for that promise, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.